I just finished doing a conference in the state of Minnesota and was getting ready to leave to head to the airport. And just as we were heading out of the church, a woman came racing up to me and she said, I'm free, I'm free. She began to tell me the story of how she had had some issues in her life, in relationships for years that she had tried to get victory over. She had been to counselors, she had been to seminars and read books and uh, been exposed to some notable and helpful uh, Christian material. But in the course of that conference, some of the things that God had shared with her had shed light of truth on her path. And she said, now I know what it is that I need to do. God had shown her the truth and now she was surrendering herself to the truth and even as she prepared to walk in that truth, she realized that there was a freedom available to her that she had not experienced in years. As I talk with women and have talked with women over more than uh, 20 years and listened to their heart cries and heard their stories and uh, read prayer cards that they turn into us at our women's conferences, As I read through those prayer cards, I realize that most women, most Christian women, are not living in freedom. They're living in bondage of various types. And if I were to describe the the majority of Christian women that I have met and shared with over the years, I would use words like frazzled, frustrated, overwhelmed, defeated, discouraged, fearful, insecure, high-strung, and in bondage. Now we know from the scripture that God didn't intend that it should be that way. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So then why is it, if we're honest, that we'd have to admit that most Christian women are not walking in the freedom that Christ purchased for them at Calvary? Well, there are a number of answers we could give to that question, but the most obvious one to me as I've searched the scripture is that we have been deceived. Where did that deception begin? Well, we know this passage so well that we sometimes overlook perhaps the significance for us as women and as we minister to women today. Whether you're a woman or you're a husband ministering to your wife or you're a counselor ministering to counselees, we need to be able to use the scripture to help apply to the lives of women to help them see how they have been deceived and how the truth can set them free. And as we know, the the origin of this deception, I'm getting just a lot of tunnel here. Are we? Thank you guys for helping us out back there. That's a lot better. That's great. Thank you. We have to go back to the opening chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis to find out where this all began. So what I want to do today is kind of in three parts. We'll take a break somewhere in the middle, and uh, but I want to do actually three sections in this material. The first is to give you a, uh, a quick overview of material that's familiar to most, if not all of us, but that will be a foundation for where we want to head with this matter of deception and truth. So I want to lay a foundation, and then I want to spend some extensive time talking about what are some of the most commonly believed lies that put 
women in bondage. And I'm going to be talking about, by and large, Christian women today, or women who at least claim to be believers, are in the church and claim to know Christ. And let me say that I'm not speaking just of people who have these extreme disorders, some of which we heard referred to uh, by other presenters, some of them I can hardly pronounce, uh, several of them I'm not sure exactly what they mean, but I'm talking about your average, everyday woman in the pew who's living with areas of bondage. And there is hope, there is grace, there is help through the truth. But first we have to identify or help her identify what are the lies that she's been believing that have resulted in that bondage. And then we'll close uh, the second part of this session by doing a brief overview of some of the truths that I have found most helpful in setting me free and in helping bring other women to freedom. So as we go back to the beginning of the scripture in Genesis chapter 1, and rather than reading the entire passage, I, I want to give just a, a survey and again, this is not new to you, but I think it will give us a foundation. As we read the first two chapters of Genesis, we have this incredibly beautiful, idyllic picture painted for us. In the beginning, God. And that's the place we have to start. That is, if there is no God, then there is no hope and help for the people we're dealing with. In the beginning, God. That's foundational. And we're going to see in the first two chapters of Genesis the way God started things. The way God flung this world into motion. And what were some of the characteristics of those earliest days of the creation. Then, as you know, when we come to chapter 3 of Genesis, it's like somebody has taken a beautiful landscape painting and tossed a bucket of black paint up onto that painting, and just this very sharp contrast emerges in chapter 3. And all of a sudden, you have from positive to negative, from life to death, from good to evil, you have this dramatic transition between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's jarring. If you, just, if you read the whole passage in, uh, in, in one setting, you find yourself just really enjoying chapters 1 and 2, and then you get to chapter 3, and something goes dreadfully, terribly wrong. What is it? It's the entrance of deception into the world. So let's just do a broad brush overview of first the painting and then comparing what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And I've done this by means of a series of comparisons uh, outlining some of the differences between the first two chapters of Genesis and the third chapter. First of all, we see that creation as God designed it in Genesis 1 and 2 is initiated by God. In the beginning, God. God's the founder, the fountain, the founder, the initiator of all that is. He's the one whose word spoke the universe into being. It was all initiated by God. When we come to Genesis chapter 3, we see another initiator. The fall, sin, was initiated by Satan. Right away we have this enemy of God, this declared enemy of God, initiating something that is counter-God, an anti-God movement, a counter-movement uh, against God. And then we see in the creation order, Genesis 1 and 2, the concept of blessing. You'll read that word at least three times in the uh, first couple of chapters of Genesis. Blessing, Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. <clears throat> And God blessed 
the creatures that he had made, the sea creatures and the birds. He blessed them. And then you see in verse uh, 28, after God creates man in his image, then God blessed them. Chapter 2, verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day. God's way is the way of blessing. Now, that sounds like it's so obvious I shouldn't need to state it. But you know, the world, and even at points, Christian leaders and thinkers have influenced people wrongly to believe that if you go God's way, you won't be blessed. Uh, And this is what when women counsel each other so often as friends to friends, the things they're sharing with each other, in essence, they're saying, though they never say it this way, if you do what this book says... You won't, be, you won't be blessed. You'll be miserable. Now, nobody would say it that way. But when we counsel people in friendships and relationships and that of our own opinions in ways that are contrary to the, to the word of God, when we encourage a woman to leave her husband, now, I'm not saying we would do that, but women are doing that with each other all the time. Christian women, well-meaning counselors, whether official or otherwise, Bible study leaders at times, are saying you shouldn't have to put up with that situation. And when we counsel people in ways that are contrary to the word of God and let them feel that they can be justified and blessed walking in a way other than God's way, we're going contrary to the ways of God. God's way is the way of blessing. And we need to say to women, if you do it God's way, as hard as it is, as impossible as it may seem to live with and love that man who may even be a real fool, if you'll do it God's way, God's way is the way of blessing. And we need to be reminded of that. God's ways sometimes do seem hard. God asks us to do some hard things. God's asked me to do some hard things recently. And I need to be reminded that God's way is the way of blessing. It may be hard. It may seem impossible, but it is the way of blessing. Now, when we come to chapter 3, we see that a curse enters to counter the blessing. So in chapter 3, verse 14, we see that God issues a curse on the serpent, on Satan, And then chapter 3, verse 17, the ground is cursed. Now, it was not the man and the woman who were cursed. There were consequences for their sin, but God cursed the serpent. God cursed the ground. We have the entrance of cursing into the human experience as a result of the fall, the opposite of blessing. And then God's way in Genesis 1 and 2 is based on the truth. God said it, and it happened. He said it, and it was so. It's the way of truth. And yet when we come to chapter 3, we see a contrary way, an alternate way, that is based on deception. And so the serpent says to the woman, you will not die if you eat. It's deception, and in multiple ways, as you realize, as you've studied this passage, he deceived the woman. And the New Testament tells us that the woman was deceived by the serpent. Uh, number four there, the, and in God's created order, Genesis 1 and 2, there's a certainty about God's word. God speaks, and it happens. God's word is certain. But when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we find that the enemy is questioning the word of God. He's putting question marks where God has put an exclamation point. Did God really say? You notice he didn't tempt the woman to deny the existence of God. Satan doesn't need you to be an atheist in order to enter into bondage. He was just casting doubt on what God had said. 
And I am astounded and grieved at how many uh, Christian communicators, writers, speakers, authors, uh, counselors in different ways, uh, in different settings, are counseling people in ways that cause them to doubt something that is clear-cut in the Word of God. So you can find Christian books on how, to, on, on how anger, venting your anger is healthy for you. What does God's word have to say about the angry person? He's a fool. And we take the scripture and in subtle ways cast doubt on what God has said. God's way in Genesis 1 and 2 is the way of life. God made the man and the woman to live forever. Eternal life. He put the tree of life in the middle of that garden. And God's way is a way of life. But the way of the enemy, the way of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 is the way of death. After man and, the man and woman believed deception and bought into it and acted on it, they fell into death. And we know from the New Testament that Satan comes to kill and to destroy. Now his ultimate object, as we know, is God. But his means of getting at God is to get at God's creatures. He comes to kill and to destroy. That's his, that's his objective. And so we read in chapter 3, verse 19, Dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. This would not have ever been true had there not been the deception and the fall. In the created order, in the first two chapters, God spoke first to the man. Before the woman was even created, God spoke to the man. That was true both before and after the fall, by the way. Before the fall, God spoke to the man, gave direction to the man as to what tree they should eat from and not eat from. But it was also true after the fall. Isn't it interesting that Adam was the one who sinned second? Eve sinned first, then Adam sinned after her. But Adam was the first one that God held accountable. He came and spoke to the man. Both times, before and after the fall, God spoke first to the man. What's the way it happens in Genesis chapter 3? In the reversed order, Satan speaks first to the woman. And the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that the woman, that the, the woman's husband was there with her. And what was he doing while the serpent and the woman were carrying on this conversation? He's doing what women sometimes tell me their husbands do a lot of the time. Nothing. And we have here this classic role reversal. The woman is the one doing the speaking, the leading, the feeding. She's feeding the man. The man's supposed to be feeding the woman and leading the woman. She's supposed to be following the leadership that he is giving as God has given him leadership. But instead, Satan initiates con uh, conversation and contact with her. Knowing, I believe, that if he could get her out of God's established order, that she would then be vulnerable to make wrong choices. And then she would end up in bondage. God's way was that uh, the man was given the primary responsibility first to listen to God and then to lead his wife. The outcome was very different in these two uh, sections of the scripture. We read, and by way of summary, in uh, Genesis 1 verse 31, when God looked on everything that he had made, behold, it was what? Very good. There's a simplicity and a beauty about the ways of God. There's a purity. It was very good. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. It's desirable. It's this backwards thinking of the enemy planting seeds in our culture and in our minds that has caused us to think that anything about this word is not good. 
God's way is good. But we have a very different outcome in chapter 3. In chapter 3, after the woman declares her independence from God and from her husband, we have the first mention of several very negative words. The first mention of words like afraid. There was no fear in the first two chapters, but now there's fear. We have the word curse, the word enmity, the word sorrow. There was no sorrow in Genesis 1 and 2, but now there's sorrow. Now there are thorns. Now there's sweat. Now we have the word in chapter 4, angry. And the word murder in chapter 4, verse 8. It's beginning in chapter 3 that we have the entrance into the world of blame and of bitterness. The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I did eat. Blame, bitterness. There was none of this in the first two chapters. The outcome of God's way is very good. Look at the outcome of doing it man's way. And people come and talk with us and they've tried all their own ways. They've tried the world's ways. They've done it in the way that is right in their own eyes. Sometimes I just feel like saying, look, you've done it your way. Where has that landed you? What has that resulted in in your life? I mean, if all the world's psychologies and methods and programs and tools and instruments are working, why do we have people whose lives are in such devastation? God's way works. God's way is right. God's way is good. And we need to get back to basics and helping people understand. You do it your way, you will reap consequences that are ugly and painful and unpleasant. You do it God's way, yes, it may be hard. Yes, there may be pain because of sin uh, in the way. There may be pain in doing it. But in the long run, there will be blessing and goodness in your life. The outcome of God's way throughout chapters 1 and 2 was communion and fellowship. Communion and fellowship. Communion between God and man. And communion between the man and his wife. When you do it God's way, there's relationship. There's oneness. God made the husband and wife one flesh. That mystical union of husband and wife that mirrors the mystical union in the Trinity. It was good. There was oneness. There was cooperation, communion, fellowship, intimacy. This is the fruit of doing it God's way. What happens when we come to chapter 3? Now we have conflict and barriers, walls, Communication gap, generation gap between God and man and between the man and his wife. Horizontal, vertically and horizontally, when sin enters into the world, now we have broken relationships. Wherever there is a broken relationship, between a parent and a child, between a husband and a wife, in a church split, between warring nations, or between man's heart and God's heart. Wherever there's a broken relationship, you can know that there's been the work of the enemy. Because God's way doesn't produce those kinds of results. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that God provided all that the man needed. God gave food to eat. God met his physical needs. God gave the man in chapter 2, verses 18 and following, a helper, a wife. Whatever the man needed, God provided for. What do we see in chapter 3? Now man had to sweat to get his needs met. It's as if God's saying, you want to handle life on your own? Go ahead. Do it. 
You see, when we surrender and trust our lives to the Creator God who knows us and made us and loves us and owns us and has the right to rule the universe, when we surrender to that God, we can trust that everything we need is going to be provided for us. When we step out from under God's covering and God's protection and God's authority, we can be assured we're going to be on our own. We're going to have to manage life on our own. And that's where most people are living in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the man and woman naked but not ashamed. Because there were no walls, there were no barriers, there was nothing separating them from each other. So there was an openness, an intimacy, and there was no shame. There was no guilt. Shame is something that we've had to live with since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall. And so the scripture says in verse 8 of chapter 3, they hid themselves from God. I was afraid, so I hid. Now they had to clothe themselves, trying to cover up. Can you just imagine that first moment of looking at each other, husband and wife, with shame? They couldn't look at each other. They couldn't look at God. And you see it replayed in your children. You see it replayed in yourself. When we sin, we can't. When we don't have a clear conscience, we can't look each other in the eyes. We have to hide. There's shame and guilt. The order as we read it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is a God-centered creation. God-centered. God is the center, the flow, the spring, the fountain of this universe. Everything centers in God. We have a picture of a, of a sovereign God who is in control of his universe. All things created by him, all things created for him, and for his pleasure they exist. It was all for God. What do we have in Genesis chapter 3? Starting at that point, we have a man-centered universe. Now, it really isn't man-centered. It's just that man thinks it's man-centered. The universe still centers in God. But we have been deceived to think that life revolves around us. This is where idolatry comes from. Life revolving around something of our own making, some created thing, rather than around God, the Creator. And so we have a life where we're fighting and struggling and conniving and scheming to get life to fit and suit us. What will make me happy? I'm not happy in this marriage, so I'm out of here. This man's not meeting my needs. I'm not going to live with this anymore. It's a self-centered universe that we've created beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Now, there are multiple ways that we can be deceived, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we know from the Scripture that we can be deceived directly by Satan as uh, Satan or his, uh, his, um, his followers as Adam and Eve were, we can be deceived by others. And Ephesians even talks about the danger of deceiving one another within the body of Christ. That's why we're supposed to speak truth to each other. And this is one area where I think we need to really challenge and caution women. Women get so much of their input and so much of their decision-making grid from listening to other women. Now, there's some women we ought to listen to. We ought to be, as younger women, listening to older women. But we need to make sure that we're teaching older women to teach the right things to younger women. To teach the younger women to love their husbands. To love their children. To be reverent. To be modest and discreet. To be keepers at home. We need to make sure that the right counsel is being given. There's so much foolish counsel. Ungodly counsel. And it's, you know, if it were the extreme things, if somebody were telling a woman to go murder her husband, most women wouldn't be listening to that. 
But what they are doing is a little more subtle version of that. They're encouraging disrespect of their husband. They're encouraging uh, things that are more subtle and not so clearly black and white. Others can mislead or deceive us. And then, of course, we know from the scripture that we can deceive ourselves. And James, in particular, warns against being self-deceived. Now, we have a deception throughout our culture. Our culture is riddled with deception, and it comes in some very obvious ways. There are, um, if you look at some of the advertising in our culture, you can see that it's rife with deception. You have headlines or advertisements like these. Become a world-class violinist instantaneously. Instant health at the flip of a switch. It's an ad for a kitchen appliance. Now, this is one of my favorites. I wish it was true. Melt 10 pounds in 10 minutes. A workout so easy, you do it in your pajamas. Here's an ad for a popular car. Delivers so much peace of mind, it should be covered under your health plan. So there's obvious deception in our culture, but there's also much more subtle deception as we read about in Romans 1 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Those who reject the truth of God and who have created a lie and believed and promoted a lie are the ones running most of our culture. But there's an, an aspect of deception that is of even greater concern to me than the general deception in the culture, and that is the uh, tendency and ease with which women are particularly deceived. And even Christian women. There is something in particular about the woman, I believe, even before the fall, but certainly subsequent to the fall, that makes her more seducible, if I could use that word, more vulnerable to temptation of deception. And again, I, Scripture doesn't tell us why. It just tells us that it's so. But I think part of the reason may be that the enemy knew if he could get the woman to sin, that her influence was enormous. That she would influence her husband, her children, her culture. See, she didn't have the ultimate authority in the marriage, but she did have huge influence, as was lived out in Genesis chapter 3. And that's why as the Lord birthed over the last few years this ministry called Revive Our Hearts, a ministry of calling women to freedom and fullness and fruitfulness in Christ, the vision that God's put on my heart is if we could believe God to send a, a counter-revolution, a revival among Christian women in our day, I think we can't begin to imagine what would be the influence, the impact on our marriages, children, our grandchildren, our schools, the media, the communities, the culture, the nation, if women would take back the ground that we gave over to the enemy in Genesis chapter 3 and have been giving over to him ever since. So what I'm doing is a women's ministry, but I believe as God sends revival to the hearts of women, the impact and influence is going to be felt much more broadly than that. I saw that illustrated this week. We were doing a recording session for uh, Revive Our Hearts, and we do that with a live audience in Little Rock, Arkansas. There's a woman who's been coming to those sessions from, I think, close to an hour away, and she's just been growing in her relationship with the Lord, and God's been exposing her to some truth that's been life-changing for her. And she had shared with us last year a testimony of how uh, God had shown her that she was no longer to be her husband's teacher or mother. That he had a mother 
and he didn't need another one, and that the Holy Spirit was supposed to be his teacher. And for this woman, who's a very strong, I mean, she had a real heart for the Lord, but she's a very strong woman, and she had been trying to fill both those roles in her husband's life. This is last year she had told us this in this little group setting. And uh, she had said God had convicted her. She wasn't to do this anymore. And in many practical ways, it changed the way she was speaking to her husband, dealing with her husband. Well, I saw her this week, and uh, she said, well, I, I commented about what she had shared last year, and she said, you cannot believe the transformation that's taken place in my husband over this last year. Now, this is a Christian couple, a beyond-average committed Christian couple. These were homeschoolers. I mean, these are uh, really some of your cream-of-the-crop people. But she said, you can't believe the transformation in my husband since God made this change in me. She said, he's taking leadership. He's giving direction. God's using him. She said she had no clue that once she got out of the way and began to take God's created role for her, how that would free her husband up to be the man God made him to be. So as women say to me, my husband won't lead. He's so passive. He's not a spiritual leader. We hear that. Some of you perhaps have felt that in your own marriage or the marriage of someone that you're concerned about. Listen, I can't do anything to change those husbands. But by God's grace, together, women, we can do something to change us. And when God changes us as we begin to embrace the truth, the results in the lives of the men that we're concerned about, our spiritual leaders in our churches and in our homes, the result of that influence will be significant. Now let me just, before we look at the lies specifically, give you a progression that's been helpful to me. It's very simple, but it's helped open my eyes to a process that we walk through to get either to bondage or to freedom. And I'm just a simple person. So I've, had to try, I've tried to reduce what I've seen in my life and in others' lives to something that's very simple. Most people don't wake up in the morning and say, I think I want to end up in bondage today. They don't just fall out of bed into spiritual bondage. It happens through a series of incremental choices and failures and decisions that lead to bondage. And I just want to outline here the the steps that lead to bondage. First of all, we listen to a lie. That's where Eve got in trouble. Her first uh, mistake was not in eating the fruit. Her first mistake was in listening to the serpent. She should not have listened to instruction from some, anyone who was casting doubt on something that God had said to her through her husband. Listening to the lie. And then when we listen, and by the way, remember the source of every lie is Satan himself. He is the father of lies. And deception is his language. And that's why it's so important, by the way, that we control and monitor the influences that we allow to come into our lives. This, I believe more and more strongly in this, the more I walk with the Lord, that it's so important that we ourselves and those um, children of your parents that you monitor on behalf of your children, that we challenge others to monitor the influence, the input they're allowing to come into their lives. There is no such thing as a harmless lie. So when you flip on the television and you see commercials and programming that don't have to be egregiously wicked, if they're just rooted in deception, in a wrong way of thinking rather than in biblical truth, then you're setting yourself up, taking the first step that leads to bondage. I'm stunned, I have to tell you, at how many godly parents 
Christian leaders in many cases, pastors, um, families that, that know God and know his ways, allow their children to be exposed to things that are not truth. They're not based in truth. I'm talking about the music they listen to, the television programs they watch, the uh, movies that they watch, the um, entertainment that they're exposed to, the magazines and books that they read. Listen, those children ought to be growing up in a, in a greenhouse environment where they're protected until they've put down roots that go down deep into the soil of God's truth and then they're ready and strong enough to face what happens in this world. Now, I know there are people who don't agree with me on this point, but I'm watching some of these parents' kids now in their teenage and older years who have no heart for God, no hunger for God, are rebellious, are turned off to Christian things. And I don't mean to be overly simplistic about what caused that. I know there are many factors that enter in here, but I believe strongly that one of the factors is that we've allowed, as an adult generation, we have not been uh, rigorous in being careful about the kind of input that we allow and that we endorse being allowed into our lives. I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm talking about loving truth and hating falsehood. Jesus loved righteousness. He hated evil. That's why he had joy above his companions, according to Hebrews chapter 1. But we listen to the lie. Then when we listen to the lie, we end up dwelling on the lie. When we dwell on the lie, we end up ultimately believing the lie. Believing the lie. Listening to the lie is like sowing the seed in the ground. When we dwell on it, it's like watering and fertilizing the seed. And then when we believe the lie, that lie takes root and ultimately it will produce fruit. Once we believe in the lie, we're going to act on the lie. We're going to act on the lie. And something that has been helpful to me is to understand that every act of sin begins with a lie. Every area of sinful bondage has its root in a lie. Because what we believe is ultimately where we're going to live. And what we believe, in fact, is not what we say we believe. What we believe, in fact, is what we evidence by the way that we live. That's it's the way that we live that evidences what we truly believe. It's one thing for me to tell you that theologically I believe that God is sovereign and that he can be trusted. I believe that. You believe that? Well, maybe we do and maybe we don't. We may believe it here, but if I'm worrying about how I'm going to fulfill my next responsibility or get out of this situation or that, my behavior is saying that, in fact, I don't believe that God is sovereign and that he can be trusted. We believe the lie, ultimately we act on it, and we act one time, then that becomes a repeated act and a repeated act, and before long there's a stronghold of deception established in our hearts. And we find ourselves in bondage. Every area of bondage in my life is rooted in a lie. Now the steps to freedom are just the opposite. Instead of listening to lies, we need to be listening to the truth. That's why we need to be saturating our minds and our hearts with the word and the ways of God. Feeding our minds with the truth. And then meditating on the truth. Dwelling on it. Chewing on it. Getting it deep into our hearts. Scripture memory. Scripture meditation. And then as we do, we will come to believe the truth. And as we believe the truth, as we exercise faith, we're going to act on the truth, take steps of obedience and righteousness. And as we act on the truth, 
God will set us free by the power of his Holy Spirit. So if we're going to deal with these areas of bondage in our lives or help others deal with them, there are three things I think that are helpful. And again, you don't just do these one, two, three, but we need to make sure first that we're identifying what are the areas of sinful behavior or bondage. What are the areas that need to be dealt with? And then number two, we need to identify what are the lies in which that bondage is rooted. What are the lies that I've been believing? Got an email this morning from a woman who was describing the, the bondage that she'd experienced in her life until she came to believe the love of Christ for her. And now she's believing the truth and acting on the truth. God is delivering her from those areas of bondage. And that's what we need to do finally is to counter and to replace the lies with the corresponding truth. So whatever the lies have been for every one of those lies, there is a corresponding truth that will counter the lies. Now, let's get started into some of the lies that women believe. Someone asked me while I was writing this book, a woman left me a voicemail, a friend, and she said, um, would you consider changing the title of the book to Lies People Believe? Because I want it, my brother really needs this book. Well, I'm going to leave the writing of the books for men to men. Uh, I'm going to focus on ministering to women. But many of these lies are also lies that are believed by men, certainly. But I have found that these are some of the most common areas of deception among Christian women. And I'll just tell you in advance, they're not real profound for the most part. Now, there's some that are pretty controversial here, but for the most part, these are things that uh, are obviously lies. Let me say it's not an exhaustive list. There are many, many other lies, but I found these to be some of the most common. And some of these things, everyone in this room and most of the people we're counseling with would agree are lies. We say, I don't believe that. That's where we need to go back and say, how are you living? Are you living as if you believe this? then in fact you have let this lie take root in your life. Now, let me also say at the outset here, there are a handful of these that are hot potato issues, and I am in no way going to do justice to those issues. I'm just going to throw it out there. I know that's a risky thing to do because some of these should have a book of their own or more written on them. And if there are one or two that we get to hear and you say, I don't agree with her on that, that's fine. I'm just going to tell you based on my understanding of the scripture what I understand to be the lies. And if you go back to the word or don't see eye to eye with me on some of these, go back to the word and just make sure that you're basing your thinking on the word of God. We've put these lies into several categories. First of all, lies that we believe about God. And I've put this category first because what we believe about God determines what we believe about everything else. If we're deceived about God, then we're going to be deceived about everything else. I remember uh, some time ago I was having a problem with my contact lens, and it was rough. It was like abrasive on my eye, and I thought I must be having some kind of allergy, so I started popping the allergy pills, and that, that wasn't helping. I finally got to the eye doctor and learned that my contact lens, it was one of those old-fashioned hard lenses, something had for some reason caused the lens to become misshapen. The, the contour of it was off, and it was rubbing against my eye the wrong way and creating this abrasion on my cornea. When that contact lens was not right, I couldn't see anything else right. Everything else was off. So I had to get the lens corrected so that my vision could be corrected. 
What we believe about God is the lens through which we see everything else in life. And that's why it's so important if we're really going to help women, or anyone else for that matter, that we get them to get a view of God that is right. To come to know God as he is. And here are some of the the ways, the mistaken concepts we have about God. Now most of these lies, Christian women would not say this way. But this is deep down in our hearts what many of us as Christian women have come to believe. Number one, God is not really good. Now no one would say it out loud. That's not allowed. But deep in our hearts there's this nagging doubt about the goodness of God. God is not really good. If he were, he would have done this. Or he would not have done this. Or he would not have allowed this to happen to me. That's a lie that God is not really good. And I think that's the essence, at least in part, of the lie that the serpent told to the woman in Genesis chapter 3. What kind of God would put restrictions on your happiness? Why would a good God tell you, you can't eat from all the trees in the garden? He was causing her to doubt the goodness of God. She'd never had a moment's doubt about that until he entered the picture. What God had provided was ample. It was sufficient. And then the serpent comes along and says, God's not really good. And many, many women doubt the goodness of God in their hearts. Here's a second one, and maybe it should have been the first one because it may be the most common. God doesn't love me. God may love everybody else, but God doesn't really love me. Oh, they know in their heads that he does, but it cannot connect at their hearts. If he did, he would not have let this happen to me. God doesn't really love me. And then this one that I think is so common among women, that God is just like my father. Or some other man that I have known who was not a wholesome or righteous model of a man. We as women tend to get our view of God as our heavenly father from the men that we have known. And I'm very blessed, and I find now this is more and more rare, to have grown up in a home with a father who had a real heart for God and was a compassionate, caring, involved father, not a perfect father by any means, but connected to the hearts of his children. As a result, it has been much easier for me to trust my Heavenly Father. But I know that you walk into a room full of women today and you talk about a loving Heavenly Father, you just use that word, Father, And it's true for some of you in this room. It causes your insides to be really uncomfortable, to cringe. There's a fear, and it's not a wholesome, healthy fear or reverence of God. There's a cringing in the presence of God. There are many, many women today who, because of things they have experienced through ungodly men, do not want to connect to their Heavenly Father. And that's where we need to Realize that this is the case and do everything we can to help women get back to who God really is. To show them that God is not like any earthly man. That the greatest, most godly of earthly fathers or husbands is just a pale reflection of what our Heavenly Father is really like. That's why we need this saturation in the Word of God so we come to know the heart and the names and the character of God for who He really is. But one of the lies is that God is just like my father. And then this lie that God is not really enough. God is not really enough. 
Yes, I need God, but I need God plus a house that has enough closet space for all my stuff. I need God plus a second car in our family. We need God plus children who are respectful and obedient. I need God plus a husband who loves me. I need God plus these books, plus this conference, plus these seminars, plus these tapes, plus this counselor. I need God plus. And we've really come to believe, you know, we fought um, generations ago the battle for the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy, infallibility of Scripture. But I think the battle we've lost in evangelicalism today is the battle for the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. He sent His Word and healed them, Psalms tells us. And so we believe that, though we wouldn't say it, the way we act, and this is very true in the whole uh, ministry of counseling and helps and church life today, that there's this, this sense that God's Word is not really sufficient to deal with certain issues or certain problems or certain kinds of people. Now, that's not to say that the Word of God doesn't need to be handled with, in the, put into the hands of people who have wisdom and ability to apply it to difficult situations. But there is such incredible, limitless, infinite power in this book to transform lives, to heal, to help, to minister grace, to transform. There is not an issue that someone will come to you or me uh, dealing with in their life that the Word of God is not what they need and is not sufficient to meet their need. There's this sense that someone or something else can make me happier than God can. It's another side of this lie for women, that I need God plus something else. Now let me just say, back up a moment. It's not the ink and paper of this book that solves people's issues and changes their lives. It's the Word of God that is what is life-changing and life-giving. And yes, it, that doesn't mean that there is not a place for gifted and wise and trained biblical counselors, but if they're not biblical counselors, ultimately they're not going to be able to impact people's lives in ways that are eternally right. God's Word has such power and is sufficient. Number five, here's a lie that God's ways are too restrictive. God's ways are too restrictive. And there we go back to Genesis chapter 3 where the enemy says um, God has restricted you from experiencing all the delights of this place. If he were truly good, he would let you have this. And when it comes to the way that we're to live as it relates to holiness and our relationships with God and with each other, there's this, this underlying sense that many Christians have today that God's way is too restrictive. So I'll go see that R-rated movie. It doesn't matter what comes into me. It doesn't matter what I put into my mind, what I, how I indulge my flesh. It does matter. But the sense is that, oh, that's just too restrictive. That's old-fashioned. That's puritanical. It's very sad that puritanical ever came to have a negative connotation. Because, you know, as you read the writings of the Puritans, one of the great marks of their writings is incredible, exuberant joy. Joy. But when you think of the word puritanical, do you think of happy people? The enemy has done a number. He's convinced us that 
The people, that God's ways and people abide by the word of God is just too restrictive. It's too narrow. It's too confining. You stay in that marriage, you'll be miserable. You get out of God's will, you will be miserable. That's the message we need to be giving to people. Here's another lie, and that is that God should fix my problems. God should fix my problems. You know, it's, I guess, inherent, maybe in all of us, to want to have everything fixed, especially in a, in a culture and an era that is so instantaneous, everything. And every problem on television can be solved in 29 or 58 minutes. And so we want God to be this heavenly genie, and we just, you know, clap our hands and wave our wand or whatever, and God comes and fixes our problems. We're going to see that the truth is that God isn't as concerned about fixing our problems as we are. God has something much higher and much better in mind than fixing all our problems. In fact, our problems may be the very means to God doing in our lives what we really have wanted him to do. So often what we're wanting and what our counselees are wanting is relief from pain. They don't want to go through the hard work and effort and labor and time and diligence of the sanctification process. They want quick deliverance. Quick, they want you to cast something or someone out of their life. Or, I mean, they want, they want it done now. They want it solved. They don't want any more tears. They don't want any more sorrow. They don't want any more pain. And that is all coming, but it's not here. And it's not now. God is fitting us for eternity. It's in heaven that there are no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. In the meantime, we need those things. And God is not just existing to fix our problems. And the person, the counselor, who's just wanting a solution to his problems is probably not going to find one. It's as we seek God and we find him that we find the issues in our lives really being dealt with. Well, lies about God lead to lies about ourselves. And women believe a lot of lies about themselves. For example, I'm not worth anything. Many, 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 I dare say most, the vast majority of women today have come to believe this. And isn't it interesting? A hundred years ago, women had far fewer rights, so to speak, than they do today. I'm talking legally. Women had far fewer opportunities than they do today. And yet today... Far more than 100 years ago, women are overwhelmed with a sense of, I'm not worth anything. So they got their rights, they got the laws changed, they got their jobs, they got their equal pay, they got their equal opportunities, and yet now they've got this hopeless sense of worthlessness. Because clanging for our rights doesn't produce in us a greater sense of value. In many cases, this is where we come back to the fractured home, uh, things were said in their home as they were growing up, things were said as they were children, someone told you you're, you're just like your mother, and now there's this nagging, gnawing sense that I will always be just like this person, I'm not worth anything, something that was said that has stuck and has uh, created adult issues. In many cases, or perhaps in most, we have developed our sense of worth based on others' opinions, based on things others have said. And that's where we learn from Jesus how to deal with this whole issue of worth. And by the way, I don't believe the problem for the most part is a poor self-image. The problem is a poor God image. If we have a right view of God, we will have a right view of ourselves. 
but we've listened to what others thought and determined our view of ourselves based on that. The scripture says in 1 Peter that Jesus was uh, rejected of men. That's what they thought of him. But he was chosen by God, and therefore he was precious. What determined his worth? It wasn't what men thought of him. It's what God thought of him. And that's what determines my worth as a woman as well. And then this lie, and again, the Christian culture is, is fraught with this lie. I need to learn to love myself. And we've been told by many, many Christian writers and communicators and counselors, you just need to learn to love yourself. But the scripture teaches us that we already love ourselves. Every man loves himself, the scripture says. That's why a man needs to learn to love his wife as he already does love himself. We need to learn to love our neighbors as we already do love ourselves. See, this person's got such an inferiority complex. That terminology has certainly captured, become household talk, and it's just not biblical. The fact is we're proud. And even some of our what we would call evidences of low self-esteem or insecurity or uh, low self-image are really thinking so much of ourselves that we're bothered by what other people think about us. And if we're going to help women walk in freedom, we've got to help them get delivered from some of these lies, such as I need to learn to love myself. All these women who are focusing on how to love themselves are not finding freedom. Freedom comes from learning to love God and love others as we already do love ourselves. Number nine, and this is one of the, as we surveyed women to write this book, this is one of the number one lies that women said they had believed, and that's, I can't help the way that I am. It's my temperament, it's my personality, it's my spiritual gift, it's my past, it's my parents, it's habit, it's whatever, but I can't help the way that I am. You know, if people believe this lie, they'll never change. They'll live in bondage if they think they have to live in bondage. Number 10, I have my rights. And I've got to stand up for those rights. If I don't, no one else will. An emphasis on rights produces rebellion. An emphasis on responsibility ultimately will sow seeds of revival. I have my rights. That's a lie. So when we're helping women, we need to be helping them not focus on your rights in this marriage or your rights as a parent or your rights in this workplace, but what is your responsibility before God in this situation. Number 11, a lie about ourselves is that physical beauty matters more than inner beauty. Physical beauty matters more than inner beauty. And, I, you know, Proverbs talks about a jewel of gold in a swine's snout says a woman without discretion is, a beautiful woman who doesn't have discretion is like that, that gold piece of jewelry in a swine's snout. I think one of the reasons that the world has had to focus so much on physical beauty for women is because there is so little inside to work with. And when the outside is all you've got, then that's what you've got to focus on. But we know from the Word of God that what is of great beauty in a woman is a spirit of meekness a quiet spirit, a reverent spirit, a freedom from fear, a freedom from anger, that these are the things that make a woman beautiful. And we need to be encouraging women in this very physically driven culture to realize that that is not what constitutes true beauty. And it's one thing when you're 20 years old and you've still got it that you can be concentrating on it, but I'm now 
gray. And it's just I am. And there are wrinkles on my skin that weren't there 10 years ago. And um, these things are happening. And our bodies do change. And um, there's the, the, the beauty that is external is at best fleeting, temporal. It doesn't last. And yet I've watched some women over the years as I've gotten older, and they don't have the same physical beauty that they did at one time, and yet you look at them and they're beautiful women. There's a radiance, there's a sweetness in their countenance, there's a richness there that's cultivated because of an inner beauty that they've been focusing on. I look at a lot of the women who are my age, Christian women, and there's a hardness, there's a toughness, there's a brazenness, there's a, and, and they may have what the world would consider a physical beauty, but there's not that inner character of the life and the heart of Jesus. And because they believed the lie, they've ended up in bondage about areas of physical beauty. And then number 12, another lie, that I should not have to live with unfulfilled longings. That's a subtle one, but I think it comes naturally to most of us to believe it, that I should be able to get my longings fulfilled. And so the single women want to be married. And little known secret, the married women want to be single. And the women with children wish they had not quite so many, and the women with no children wish they had more. And there's a sense of unfulfilled longings and that I shouldn't have to live with these unfulfilled longings. People are not going to be free until they realize that it's okay to have unfulfilled longings. And that we will always have unfulfilled longings this side of eternity. And you know what? It's a good thing we do. Because if all my longings could be filled here and now, I would never long for there and then. It's the fact that I do have unfulfilled longings while I'm in this mortal flesh that makes me long for heaven. And the Christian life, the sanctification process, as I understand it, is a process of becoming increasingly detached from this world and increasingly attached in my heart to heaven, to eternity, to the things of God. And those unfulfilled longings are what created me in a longing and a hunger and a thirst for heaven. Now, if I believe that I should not have to live with unfulfilled longings, then I'm also by implication, going to believe that it's okay to do whatever I need to do to get my needs met. So if my husband's not meeting my needs, then it's okay to get my needs met through sharing confidences with a man at work who gives me a sympathetic or listening ear. And we begin to justify these things because we think, I have this longing, I should be able to get it filled. And so if I have this longing, this emotional need in me that's crying out, then it's okay to uh, fulfill that in illicit ways with overspending or overeating, with substance addiction, uh, um, addiction. So many times the needs that we're sinning to fulfill are because we have the sin of demandingness, insisting that I must have my needs met, I must have them met now. Let's take about a Three-minute break, just give you a chance to stand up and stretch, and then we'll pick up with lies that women believe about sin. We'll go right up until about 3 o'clock. So just a quick break here, okay? Out in June, a, uh, a workbook, a study guide that accompanies the book Lies Women Believe. We've got a tremendous response from the book Lies Women Believe, and then in June they'll be available a companion tool called Walking in the Truth which is a 10-week 
study guide for individuals or small groups to use uh, that goes chapter by chapter through the book. It goes with the book and walks people into a deeper experience of the truth. If you would like to receive a free copy of Walking in the Truth when it comes out, um, that, because it may be a resource you want to share with others and to get a small group involved in doing this study, then if you'll sign up on a sign-up list at our resource tables on the opposite wall over there, we will send you a copy of that of the study guide when it comes out in uh, June. So feel free to stop by our table and sign up on that list if you'd like to get a copy of that. Number 13. Lies women believe about sin, about sin. And I'm going to move very quickly through these because I just want to give you broad brush overview. I'm not going to do justice uh, to most of these. I think a common um, mistaken belief about sin, a lie about sin, and again, we wouldn't say it this way, but it's what we actually live, is that I can sin and get away with it, which is really what Satan told Eve, isn't it? You will not die. I can sin and get away with it. And, and the, uh, the implications then are I won't reap what I sow. I can make this wrong choice. I can indulge my flesh in this way that I want to, and I won't reap consequences. The choices I make today will not have consequences. I can play with fire and not get burnt. I can carry on this too intimate conversation with this man at church or this counselor or this pastor and not get burnt. I don't have to draw, have guardrails or parameters or boundaries or borders in my life uh, as to what's appropriate behavior. I can make these choices and get away with it. And the fact is, we can't. Sin and wrong choices always have consequences. Now, the consequences don't always happen right away. But invariably, there will be consequences, negative consequences, for our choices that are wrong choices. Number 14, my sin isn't really that bad. My sin isn't really that bad. Now, we think everybody else's sin is that bad, but not my sin. And then the counter to the other side of that coin, there are people like me who've grown up in the church and never known anything but the ways and the word of God. And our tendency is to believe this number 14. My sin isn't really that bad by comparison to a lot of other sins that people commit. Then you have people who haven't grown up in that environment, who've been everywhere and done it all, and their tendency is to believe number 15, and that is that God can't forgive what I have done. That abortion that divorce, that immorality, that homosexuality. God can't forgive what I've done. You know, both those lies find their, uh, their, their solution at the cross. For people like me who are self-righteous Pharisees who've grown up thinking my sin isn't all that bad, the cross shows me what God thinks of sin. And for the woman who's grown up in an environment where she's made a lot of wrong choices that are more obvious ones and who believes that God can't forgive what she's done, the cross is what shows God's provision for her sin, the mercy, the grace, and the justice, and the wrath of God all coming together there at the cross. And then number 16, the lie that I'm not fully responsible for my actions and my reactions for my eating habits, my spending habits, my anger, my critical spirit, my personal moral habits. I'm not fully responsible. Yes, it's me doing it, but it's the way I was brought up. It's the trauma I experienced as a child. 
it's the uh, influence of someone else. It's the um, it's my husband's lack of love for me. There's something or someone else that has made me this way, and so I'm not fully responsible. That's a lie. Number 17, and I think this was the number one, if not maybe, if not one, maybe two, uh, lie that women said they had found themselves believing, and that is that I cannot walk in consistent victory over sin. You know what? If you believe that lie, you won't walk in consistent victory over sin. And the devil loves it when we believe this. Because that's all he has to do is keep us believing this, and then we'll live in defeat. If we believe that lie. Lies about priorities. There are many we could choose here, but I've chosen three. Number 18, I don't have time to do everything I'm supposed to do. That was the number one one, I remember now, as we surveyed women. And it's probably the one I have, uh, in recent days, found myself believing. I don't have time to do everything I'm supposed to do. Do you know that's a lie? Now, it is true that I don't have time to do everything that's on my to-do list. I don't have time to do everything that everybody else wants me to do. I don't have time to do everything that I want to do. But there is time, and this is such a liberating truth for me, there is time in every 24-hour day for me to do everything that is on God's to-do list for my life for that day. And once I accept that truth, I will be liberated in terms of my priorities because then life becomes an exciting adventure of discovering what is on God's to-do list for my day and then setting about to do that and not feeling guilty about not doing the other things that are on everybody else's list but aren't on God's list. And when I begin to think and live the truth in this area, then I can say at the end of my life, as Jesus did at the end of his earthly life, I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. That's what I want to be able to say. But if I'm believing this lie, I won't be able to. Number 19 is a lie that I can make it without consistent time in the word and prayer. And again, we wouldn't say that, but we live that way. And as a result, we're living life in our own steam, in our own effort, rather than in dependence upon the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. Number 20, a lie that feminist thinking, which is, by the way, not just extreme and radical, it's in the air we breathe in our churches today, and one of the common lies that it has foisted on us in the last two generations is that a career outside the home is more valuable and more fulfilling than being a wife and a mother. And so we have pulled women into the marketplace, out of their homes, not allowing them to fulfill the highest priorities, Jim Logan, go away, that God has for their lives. <laughs> He's a case. Um, and I love him. That was really important, what I was trying to say, you know. He's out there praying for us. Number 21, lies that we believe about marriage. And again, there are many other lies that we could have uh, added to this one. But one, uh, number 21, I have to have a husband to be happy. And uh, that's a lie that a lot of women believe until they get married. <laughs> and then they realize it was a lie. Um, and I don't mean that in a way that's disrespectful of husbands. What I mean is that there is no human being that can satisfy and fill the deepest needs of another human being's heart. 
No matter how godly your husband is, he's not the one who can make you happy. He can't fill your cup. And the more you look to him to do that, the more disappointed and unhappy and unfilled you will be. Number 22, it's my responsibility to change my mate. Isn't that why God gave you to him? To change him? You didn't tell him that when you were dating. First of all, you can't change your mate. And a lot of women live very frustrated, angry lives because they're trying to do something that they can't do. God's the only one who can change your mate. You can love your mate. You can reverence your mate. And that's what God calls you to do. To come in under his authority, to reverence him, to lift him up, to honor him, to pray for him, to serve him, to bless him, to love him. You say, he's become my enemy. Then love your enemies. But you can't change your husband. God can change your husband. And by the way, if you're a man in here, I don't mean to be just uh, to be leaving you out, but uh, there may be men in here that there are needs in your wife and you want to see God change your wife. You can't change your wife. You can love your wife as Christ loved the church. You can provide spiritual headship and covering and protection over her. You can wash her with a washing of water with the word, but God's the one who has to change the heart of your mate. Number 23, my husband is supposed to serve me. Now, that's what I call kind of a half-truth. A half-truth is a half-lie. Of course, as Christ serves his church, husbands ought to serve their wives and wives ought to serve their husbands. But in this day where we've had so much um, wonderful so many wonderful opportunities for men, promise keepers, other of these sorts of things that have encouraged men to go back into their homes, to love their wives and serve their wives. One of the downsides of all of that is it's created in a lot of women, I fear, an expectation of what their husband is supposed to do or be to meet their needs. And we need to remember, now I should have started out by saying that I've never been accused of being politically correct and um, certainly not in relation to this session. So uh, what I'm saying really goes against the grain of our culture. But we have to remember that God did not create the man to be the woman's helper. God created the woman to be the helper to the man. Does that mean your husband should never help? That's not my point. The point is if your focus is on his role being a helper, you're expecting him to be something that God made you to be. And when women believe that, that their husband is supposed to be their helper, they're going to end up bitter, angry, frustrated if they will say, God made me to be his helper. And what can I do to serve God by serving my husband? I believe that's how they will find ultimate joy and freedom and blessing in the marriage relationship. Number 24, another lie. If I submit to my husband, I'll be miserable. See, that goes again to, remember we said in Genesis 1 and 2, God's way was the way of blessing? But the enemy has convinced us, if you do it God's way, you'll be miserable. And yet it's as we resist God-ordained authority on any level that we find ourselves miserable. Joy and freedom come from taking my place as a woman or as a man under God. God-ordained authority, all of us under God's authority as we submit to God's authority and to the human authorities that he has placed in our lives. There is freedom to be who God made us to be and to enjoy the blessing of God in our lives. Now that's not saying it's always easy. That's not saying as a wife that the husband is always right. 
if he were always right and it were always easy, it wouldn't be an issue. It's an issue because he's not always right. It's an issue because it's hard. But there's blessing that comes through obedience to God first and then to the human authorities that he has placed in our lives. Number 25, this is a common one in our culture, in our Christian culture. It's the lie that if my husband is passive, I've got to take the initiative or nothing will get done. Now again, I'm real out of sync with the times on this one. And I admit to it. I remember having a a woman who's a woman in Christian leadership of various types, married to a man who's in who's very active in ministry, but she heard me talk about this one day and she kind of took issue with me and she said, Nancy, when we got married, my husband was so addicted to sports, sitting in front of the TV watching football all the time. If I hadn't done something, nothing would have ever gotten done in our family as it relates to ministry and serving the Lord. Well, I look at the culture. I look at the evangelical culture and I hear women singing the blues about how men don't take leadership. And I really believe that we as women have got to take a huge part of the responsibility for why that's so. Now, maybe if I were a man, I would see it differently. But I'm a woman, and I feel like the best way I can help women is by encouraging us to take our responsibility. It's not my job to point out the responsibility of the men. But I do believe as a culture, in an evangelical culture, as we as women have stepped in to fill the vacuum, that we have demotivated the men and emasculated the men and kept them from becoming the men that God wants them to be. Now, since there are a few men in the room, let me just say, that doesn't let men off the hook for their responsibility. And I do know some men react the other way in terms of ex- obsessive control and anger. Seems to Women's taking up control seems to drive men in one of two directions either to totally abdicate or to become angry and domineering. Neither is right. And men are responsible for their own lives and their own issues. But women, when we step into the void, the men are not going to fight us for it. I've sat in meetings. I serve as a woman on a staff that is mostly men in terms of the leadership of our ministry. And I've sat in meetings and... You know, we women are verbal. We are quick to verbalize, quicker to speak typically than men. And there have been times when I've just been biting my tongue and sometimes not biting my tongue when I should have been, thinking, why doesn't one of these men say something? Fix this. Change this. And when I jump in, it's amazing how they just back off. What I've done is strip them of some of their manhood. Now, that doesn't mean as women that we're never to speak, that we're never to act. Part of your helping your husband as a woman is helping to speak truth to him at times. But the spirit and the manner in which we do that is so important. Women say, if, if I didn't jump in, my husband, he, didn't, he wouldn't work for a living. He's a lazy bum. He would, my family would starve. You know what? I, you know, maybe you would. And there are worse things than starving to death. If you're a child of God, there are a lot worse things than starving to death. But I don't think that's what had happened. Because I think there's a self-preservation instinct in that man that when he gets hungry, he will find a job. Um, Now, I've realized by saying this, there are a lot of specific situations I'm not covering. So I I know I'm broad-brushing and generalizing. But um, if my husband didn't, if, if I didn't take the reins in my family, my husband would never do anything. I have a hunch that many, many women today 
would see the supernatural motivating power of God at work in their husband's lives if they were willing to just back off. Be quiet. One of the things I admire about Mary of Nazareth is she knew how to ponder things in her heart. She had this incredible revelation from God about this child she was going to have. You had to be there. And Joseph wasn't there. And when she went and told him, he, he didn't believe her. I mean, that's kind of understandable when you think about it. But you notice Mary didn't press Joseph to believe. We women, by nature of our more relational, sensitive natures, oftentimes do see a truth or get an insight before the men do, as happened with Mary. But she didn't press Joseph. She backed off and she waited. That's what we don't like to do. We don't want to wait. She waited for God to send an angel to Joseph to tell him the truth. And when God revealed it, Joseph saw it. Now, it may not work quite that way in your marriage. But I'm just saying we as women need to learn to wait. We need it. That's where we develop a spirit of meekness and quietness, not having to jump in, not having to fix, not having to change. And what I, I just think in our evangelical community, we would see men rise to be men if we would let them be. And if we would take our place of loving and serving and honoring and respecting and helping and encouraging and becoming their cheerleaders, then I believe there would be courage taken in the heart of men. Now that change isn't going to take place in them or in us overnight. That's why we need to wait and let God do what he, is going, what he wants to do and is able to do. Number 26. See if we can get a little more controversial here. Sometimes divorce is a better option than staying in a bad marriage. And I wish we had time to just talk about how lies have bro the, the uh, lies surrounding the area of divorce have been so deadly in our Christian culture. If we're ever going to see revival, I believe the church is going to have to repent of the sin of divorce. You don't hear it preached about today because the pulpit is getting divorced and men in leadership and families in leadership are being divorced and continuing in their same platform and ministry of leadership. And the lie is now that it's better to get a divorce and start over again than to stay in a bad marriage. Now, I don't mean by bringing this up here to make an exhaustive statement on the subject of divorce and remarriage. There's lots more to be said about this subject. Go to the Word. But I'm just saying we've believed some lies about this. And I had a woman come up to me after I taught this not too long ago, and she was just brokenhearted that she had been counseling a friend of hers, encouraging a friend of hers not to stay in a troubled marriage. She said, she just realized she'd been so wrong to give this kind of counsel. She was sympathizing. She was empathizing. Her mercy was coming out, and she was not wanting this other person, the friend of hers, to have to be in a difficult situation. What she was really doing was rescuing her friend from the cross. And we women tend to do that more naturally. It's that merciful side. Listen, mercy is great, but mercy and truth together cause iniquity to be purged. Proverbs chapter 16. By mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Well, lies about children. Number 27. 
I never anticipated when I wrote the book Lies Women Believe that this would be by far the number one most controversial point in the whole book. It certainly wasn't the major point to me, but it was more controversial than the teaching on divorce or um, any other subject was this matter that to me is, uh, and again, I'm not going to make a, a thorough statement on it by any means, but the lie that it's up to us to determine the size of our family. And if you will trace the history of childbearing, contraception, abortion, these issues, you will see that there's such a, Satan is the one who sets out to kill and to destroy. God is a life giver. And God made women to be bearers and nurturers of life. And, as, and somehow in this culture, with the feminist revolution, one of the things that has come with that is that the woman has the right to her own body. She has the right to determine how many children, when, if. And if we are Christians, if we are children of God under the Lordship of Christ, then we have to say, this area of my life, my childbearing, as with every other of my life, should be under the control of the Lordship of Christ. Now, I'm not... <laughs> Thank you, Brother Jim. <laughs> I'm not going in this setting to even tell you what my personal understanding of the scripture is in relation to the application of all of this. But I think we have to agree, if we're going to live under the Lordship of Christ, that he ought to be consulted about this. That we should not say, it's up to us to determine this issue. You say, what's the big deal? Because selfishness and wanting to run our own lives is at the core of what ultimately puts people in bondage. So if we want to set, see them get set free, we need to get at it, probe at it, and expose the areas of life where they're running their own lives rather than walking in the truth. Number 28, the lie that children need to get exposed to the, quote, real world so they can learn to function in it. Let me just say the real world is God's world. It's the world of truth. It's the world of eternity. And I'm so thankful that my parents as young believers when they started our family had a conviction that they should be sheltering their children from the outside storms until our roots went down deep and we were ready to face the world with conviction and with our lives solidly rooted in truth. Another point that um, is... Not widely accepted today, but I think it's something we need to examine. Number 29, a lie that all children will go through a rebellious stage. Parents expect this, then it probably will happen. Now, I'm not saying no children will go through a rebellious stage, but it's a lie and it's become an assumption that teenagers rebel. Now, teenagers are, or during that age, I'm not even crazy about the concept of teenagers. It's given a lot of excuse for irresponsible behavior, um, but during there's that season of life when children are moving away from the home, especially men moving toward independence where they will build, become responsible for their own families, but to assume that they'll go through a rebellious stage is to set parents and children up, I think, for failure. Number 30, this is a common one I'm hearing among mothers today. I know that my child is a Christian because he prayed to receive Christ at an early age. You go back to the book of 1 John, you see that if there is not evidence of faith in our lives, same thing in the book of James, then we have no basis for assurance of salvation. Assurance of, my assurance of salvation is not based on the fact that I prayed a prayer on May the 14th, 1963, to receive Christ into my life. I did pray a prayer, but that's not what gives me assurance of my salvation. 
if there is a lifestyle of resistance against God and no heart or hunger or appetite for the things of God, then we ought to wonder, does that child, son or daughter, really know the Lord? And if we assume that they're a believer, then we may be doing them an injustice and may be praying for them incorrectly as God is wanting to bring them to faith in Christ. Number 31, we're not responsible for how our children turn out. Here again, we come to something where there are both sides that we need to look at and, and uh, the, the, t- the enemy takes parents on such a pendulum swing here, either that they feel that they're totally responsible and therefore live under a guilt trip when their children are also responsible, or they feel they have no responsibility at all. I did everything I could, and this is how my child turned out. Well, the scripture teaches they're both responsible. Parents are responsible. Children are responsible to make their own right choices before God. Number uh, it lies about emotions. Number 32, if I feel something, it must be true. I feel unloved, therefore I am unloved. And then I can't control my emotions. And the implication there is I can't do what's right when my emotions are out of whack. Number 34, these are kind of related to each other. I can't help how I respond when my hormones are out of whack. Which being interpreted is, it's understandable to act like a shrew at certain times. (laughs) Ladies... What, how in the world did women understand their lives before we had all these explanations, I'm not going to say it here, but um, for our behavior that were based on our cycles and our seasons of life? How did people survive? You know, a lot of them survived a lot better than we're surviving today because we've given ourselves so many excuses and justifications for sinful behavior. Now, I'm not saying that hormones and seasons and cycles of life don't affect us. Please don't misunderstand that. There are issues I'm facing in my life today that are spiritually and emotionally that are different than issues that I faced when I was in my 20s, and some of it has to do with the changes inside my body. And you can't separate all those. But I don't ever have to sin. I can obey God in every season of life. I can trust God and walk by faith, whether I'm in in any season or cycle of life, by God's grace. Number 35, the answer to depression must first be sought in medication and or psychotherapy. And again, I'm not going to get into this. There are other workshops on that that will be helpful other resources available, but the lie that women, Christian women today are believing wholesale is that the first place to turn for depression is to medication and or psychotherapy. It's a lie. And as a result, and I'm not saying there are no circumstances under which those may be appropriate. So don't misunderstand me. If you want to see what I really believe about these things, get the book and it explains these a little more carefully than I can here. But I am saying it's foolish and unwise and a mistake for us as women to turn anywhere other than the Lord first. To look to him to show us how he wants to meet the deepest needs of our hearts. Number 36, lies about circumstances. If my circumstances were different, I would be different. You know what that makes us? Victims. We can't help the way that we are. It's our circumstances that make us what we are. So we're victims of past offenses, of our upbringing, of our circumstances. And then we're not responsible. You know why that lie is such a dangerous one? Because if we're victims, 
And if our circumstances make us what we are, there's no hope. Hope is for sinners. Grace is for people who take responsibility for their own lives. And when I realize that I am who I am because of the, the way that I've chosen to respond to my circumstances and my upbringing, that it, it, we need to be challenging women to grow up, to begin to accept personal responsibility and say, yes, you had this atrocious upbringing and your parents sinned against you in grievous and uh, horrible ways. But you do not have to live in the bondage of that upbringing. That's not to say it hasn't affected you, it hasn't influenced you, or that we don't need to work through these things. But for women to be given hope, they need to know that they're not victims. That they are responsible for their own lives and their walks before God. Number 37, I shouldn't have to suffer. This is why so many women leave their marriages. And this is, I don't mean to just pick on marriages and other relationships as well, this sense that life should be pain-free. Life isn't pain-free. And there is suffering, and you can't become like Jesus without suffering. But there's this lie that I shouldn't have to suffer. Number 38, and this creates such despair in women, the sense that my circumstances will never change. This will go on forever. That lie creates hopelessness. The fact is, your circumstances may last for a lifetime, but a lifetime is not forever. You say, it seems like forever. I know. But it's not. And if we could only see life through the lens of eternity and realize if it's 40 or 50 or 60 years in a painful marriage, eternity, all those years, will be just a blip on the screen. You know, I can endure when I set my eyes on the end of the race. And realize this will not go on forever. There is coming a day when there will be no more tears. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more sin. No more curse. It won't go on forever. Number 39. This is a lie that puts a lot of women in bondage. I just can't take anymore. It leads to thoughts of suicide. It leads to divorce. It leads to women anesthetizing their pain with unnecessary medication. And many, many women today, I know I'm treading on some real thin ice here, um, but so many women today are living, like, Christian women are living like zombies. They're not able to experience true joy and because they're not willing to experience pain. And if we're not willing to experience depths of pain, then we probably will not be able to experience heights of joy because they're so medicated that they live on this just very... I mean, they feel okay. They don't feel anything because they said, I can't take anymore. i got to medicate this pain. The cross is a reality in the life of a child of God. There's no redemption without a cross. But we're conditioned to run from the cross, to resist the cross, to resent the cross, rather than running into it and enduring the shame and the pain for the joy that is set before us. Number 40, and maybe this is at the heart of a lot of these lies. It's rife in our culture. It's all about me. 
my feelings, my happiness, my condition, my heartaches, my pain, my story, my comfort, my convenience, my marriage, my well-being. That we come back to that self-centered world that's a result of the fall. Well, when we listen to the lies, when we dwell on the lies, we come to believe the lies. When we believe the lies, we tend to act on the lies. And as we act on the lies, we end up in bondage. If we want to get set free, we've got to listen to the truth and heed the truth, believe the truth, act on the truth, and the truth will set us free. Not only does the truth set us free, the truth is so powerful. I was telling a group here last night that if I didn't believe, as I listened to the heartaches and the heart cries of women and their marriages and their situations today, if I didn't, and some of them very, very desperate, horrible, hard situations with their upbringing, things they've experienced, childhood traumas, etc. If I didn't believe in the power of the truth, the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the grace of God, the power of the name of Christ, the power of the blood of Christ. If I didn't believe in the power of God and his truth, I'd get in another kind of work. I told him last night I'd become a hairdresser or something because it would be hopeless. I can't help myself, much less the people who come to me looking for help. But I know a source of life and a source of help and grace, the source that sets us free. The truth also protects us and the truth sanctifies us according to the word of God. So let me just walk through these truths and I have found these truths as simple as they are so helpful in my own life. In fact, we have available, I believe back at the resource table here, these truths listed on a bookmark form. And I have encouraged people and done it myself or with groups at points to just take these truths. At times, especially when your emotions are raging and telling you things that aren't true, we women tend to live more by our emotions than by the truth. And so when the emotions are raging, when we're tired, when we're lonely, when we're angry, when we're fearful, when we're frustrated, take these truths and read them out loud and learn to counsel our hearts according to the truth. And I'll tell you, I'm as prone as anyone else. If I didn't have the truth buoying up my heart and my spirit day after day, my life would be one basket case. As would anyone's life. It's the truth that keeps that makes me sane. It's the truth that gives me perspective. It's the truth that gives me hope. It's the truth that keeps me going when I think I can't put the next foot in front of the other. It's the truth that gives life. So take these truths. Read them. Study them. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Read the scriptures that go with them. And encourage those that you're ministering to to take these truths and counsel their hearts according to the truth of God's word. Let me just read through them. Uh, Number one, God is good. God is good. We know it. We need to counsel our hearts according to it. Psalm 119, 68. Oh, God is good and everything he does is good. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, Psalm 136, for he is good. That means give thanks when I don't feel like he's good, because he is good. And so give thanks. And my heart is rescued from those dangerous emotions that tell me he may not be good. Number two, God loves me. He wants me to have his best. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God loves me. Number three, I am complete and accepted in Christ. 
through the righteousness of Christ, I've been made acceptable to God. I'm complete and accepted in Him. Number four, God is enough. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. God is sufficient. He will meet my needs. Number five, God can be trusted. Isaiah tells us the one who trusts in Him will never be dismayed or put to shame. God can be trusted. Number six, God doesn't make any mistakes. Everything that comes into my life has been filtered through his fingers of love. Now, it's one thing for us to sit here and affirm these truths in this setting. It seems all very, you know, simple and not very profound right here. But you get out in the storms and the throes of life, as we all must when we leave this place. These are the truths that will restore and bring order and perspective and hope to your life and to the lives of those you're trying to help. Number seven, God's grace is sufficient for me. I have just been through the most, by far, the most difficult, challenging year of my ministry life. There have been a lot of blessings, a ton of blessings, but there have been a lot of very difficult challenges. And I'll tell you, the thing that has kept me going is the grace of God and realizing, counseling my heart in moments when I felt I just could not, I felt like I was under a tidal wave and could not breathe at points with the demands and responsibilities that were placed upon me as we launched the Revive Our Hearts radio ministry. And yet I've had to counsel my heart again and again and again. His grace is sufficient for me. It's enough. His grace is sufficient. It's enough. He is enough. His grace is enough. It's sufficient for that marriage. It's sufficient for that pain. It's sufficient for that physical disaster. And they say, I need to pause while they turn a tape or something. Just think about that sufficiency of his grace for a sec here. They made that sign big enough that people over 40 could read it too. That's good. His grace is sufficient for me. And remember when you're counseling someone, by the way, that His grace is sufficient for the person you're counseling. It's easy for us as we're ministering to others to think, yeah, God's grace is sufficient for me, but I don't know if God's grace could make, help this person make it through. Do you ever despair of hope for somebody else that you're trying to minister to? You look at their circumstances and you think, this seems just so utterly impossible. Well, it may be for anything or anyone but the grace of God. Number eight, the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all my sin. What a thought. I mean, any one of these is enough to give you hope. But for any sin I've committed, and so the woman who's lived with the post-abortion syndrome, the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all her sin. Number nine, the cross of Christ is sufficient to conquer my sinful flesh. My old man has been crucified with him, so that henceforth I should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. You know what that means in practical terms? I don't have to sin. Now that doesn't mean I won't sin, but it means I don't have to. See, most Christians are living under the bondage of the lie that they can't help sinning. But the scripture says if you're a child of God, you've been set free from sin. I don't have to sin. I don't have to keep giving into that stronghold and that sinful bondage in my life. That's the first step to victory. Now just knowing that 
doesn't mean automatic victory. But it's the starting place to walking in freedom is to counter the lies with the truth. I don't have to sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Number 10, my past does not have to plague me. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we need to help women realize today that our past failures can become stepping stones to greater victory and greater fruitfulness. And that if we will let him, God will cause everything that has happened to us work together for our good and his glory. Number 11, the truth that God's word is sufficient to lead me, to teach me, and to heal me. It's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The word of God is sufficient. Number 12, through the power of his Holy Spirit, God will enable me to do anything and everything that he commands me to do. You know what that means? It means there's no one that I cannot forgive. There's no one that I cannot love. It means by the power of God within me, I can give thanks in all things. And I can be content in every circumstance. I can obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit within me. I don't know about you, but these simple truths are so liberating to my spirit. Even as I say them, I'm counseling my heart according to the truth of God's word. It's giving me hope. Number 13, I have to realize that I'm responsible before God for my behavior, my responses, and my choices. I was speaking in Colorado Springs a number of years ago, and a woman came to the microphone to give a testimony. She said, I've been a therapist for 22 years. And then brokenly she said, I want to repent before you, my sisters, and before you, my God, for leading you astray and for telling you lies, for not saying, I am solely and personally responsible for my own behavior, no matter what anyone else does. I'm sorry. 22 years in the business of helping people. And she hadn't really been helping them, though she wanted to, though she thought she was, because she had not been helping them see that they had to take personal responsibility for their own lives. Number 14, I will reap whatever I sow. And number 15, the pathway to true joy is to relinquish control. Control of my life, of my mate, of my children, of my circumstances. And then that the greatest freedom I can experience is found through submission to God-ordained authority. And so we have to help women understand the basic principles of God's Word. I had a woman come up to me in a book signing uh, line a few weeks ago. She handed me the book, Lies Women Believe, and she said, I have to tell you first, I hate this book. (laughs) I said, oh, you do? She said, yes. I said, what is it? She said, it's that submission stuff. I said, was that new to you? She said, I had never heard the principle before. This is at a conference for women ministry leadership of a large denomination. Not not vocational. I mean, anybody could come, but that's where we were. I thought, you know, there's one. Couldn't have been two women later. Here comes another woman, same book. I never heard this submission thing until I read it in this book. Now, you might ask, don't they read their Bible? (laughs) Apparently not. Don't they hear it in the pulpits? I don't know. I think women have made it, some women have made it very difficult for men to speak the truth in our pulpits today. And women, if you believe the truth, you need to encourage your pastor 
when he does speak the truth. Let him know that not everyone's going to shoot at him, that you're going to encourage him when he does. The freedom that comes through understanding that the husband is the head of the wife, that the wife is to reverence and submit to her husband, and that, and this is what makes all the other possible, remembering that the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. So therefore, my trust is not in a person. My trust is in God. Then number 17, in the will of God, there is no higher, holier calling than to be a wife and mother. Oh, what we need to, now that, let me, that, I'm not saying that God calls every woman to be a wife and a mother. But I am saying that in the will of God, there's no higher calling than to be a bearer and nurturer of life, a helper of a man, together in the kingdom of God, seeking to extend the reign and rule of God on this earth. Number 18, personal holiness is more important than temporal happiness. Jesus Christ gave his life for his church, his bride, so that he might wash her and cleanse her, that she might be blameless and spotless, not having any wrinkle or spot or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish before him. And then number 19, realizing the truth that God is more concerned about changing me and glorifying himself than he is about solving my problems. That's a whole new perspective on life for a lot of people. We want our problems solved, and God says, I want to make you like Jesus. I want to conform you to the image of Jesus. You say, oh, that's what I want too. Okay, then Suffering 101. You finish that course, let's go to Suffering 102. You finish that course, we've got more suffering courses. But the very thing we resent and resist may be exactly what God is using as an instrument to conform us to the image of Christ. You see, the woman who's living with an impossible husband, or maybe he really is impossible, or maybe she's just come to see him as impossible, and both can be true. Uh, Yes, her husband needs to be changed. But her focus has to be on, and as I'm helping her, I'm not helping her if I'm sympathizing with her about her impossible husband. I'm helping her if I help her focus on her responsibility and what God is wanting to do in her life and how God can use even the hurt and the pain and the suffering of this difficult marriage to fulfill that goal to make her like Jesus. Which brings us to number 20. The truth that it's impossible to be godly without suffering. Suffering is a very important part of uh, being conformed to the image of Christ. I said, finally, two more here. Number 21, my suffering will not last forever. 2 Corinthians 4 says it's, it's momentary and light affliction. Now, when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't seem momentary and it doesn't seem very light. And if this life is all there were, then it wouldn't be momentary and light. It would be heavy and unbearable. But this life isn't all there is. And in light of what we have, the exceeding weight of glory that God is preparing for us in heaven, every affliction we have to bear here on earth is momentary and light. And then we come to number 22, which again is so foundational. It's not about me. It's all about him, the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God. My life is dispensable. The kingdom of God is eternal. And that's what we want to encourage people to live for. So how do we find redemption and restoration in our areas of bondage through Christ, who is the truth? 
When we point people to truth, we're not just putting head, giving them head knowledge. We have to point them to Christ, who is the truth. It's not just through knowing these principles that people will be set free. It's through entering into an intimate love relationship with the Lord Jesus that they will be set free. And then number two, through surrender to the truth. It's not enough to know these things. I wrote the book. I know these things. The question is, am I today, this moment, in this circumstance, surrendering my life to what I know to be the truth? And that's where freedom is found. And then the reminder that one day, the paradise that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, where we started, will be restored. The story began in a garden. And the story ends in a garden. In the first part of the story, there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden. Because the man and woman chose to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out of the garden. And That must be, um, uh, what's his name? I forgot his name. That's really bad. Dan. Um, they were cast out of the garden as a merciful act of God so they would not live forever in their fallen, sinful condition. But when we come to the Last chapters of the Bible, the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, we have a scene from heaven where again we have the tree of life. And we're told, blessed are they who do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of the city. The reason that we can one day partake of the tree of life freely is because the Lord Jesus, the truth, the living word of God, the son of God, laid down his life on a tree. And what was a tree of death for him became for us a tree of life. So let's walk in the truth, in the light of the truth. And let's be instruments of life by challenging others, calling others to walk in the truth. You know, you'd think with the kinds of things I'm saying today, that I wouldn't have any um, speaking invitations. <laughs> um, and sometimes I do kind of brace myself. I think people are just, they're going to, this will not go over. It's so contrary to, the, to, to everything that's being taught today, it seems, or to much of what's being taught. But you know what I'm finding is I'm doing women's conferences and ministering some of these truths on our daily radio program. For those who have ears to hear, the truth resonates. They love it. And I'm getting this sense, and I say this to encourage you, because many of you are in ministries or serving in ways that you're ministering the truth to others. Don't apologize for speaking the truth. Do it in love. Do it with compassion. Do it with wisdom. Do it as an appropriate word in a fitting season, in the right timing. But say it. Say it. And people will love you for it ultimately. Now, they may react initially. But I'm finding, just like those two women who came and stood in line to get me to sign their book who'd never heard of submission, and it's, it's a big issue to them. But they've got ears for the truth, and they're, it's, the sense is almost, why has nobody told us this before? So don't let the world cause you to cower. Speak the truth. Speak it lovingly. Speak it graciously. But speak it boldly. You'll know the truth. And it will set you free. And you'll give out the truth. And it will set others free. Oh, Father, we bless you. We love you. You are so good. Your ways are so great.
And we've been encouraged and challenged, I have, as we have just walked in the light of your truth over these last moments. Lord, I pray for someone here who is still walking in darkness and in deception, and all of us in some areas of our lives that we're just blind to. Would you open our eyes, help us to see how we've been deceived, and help us to counter those lies with the truth. 